I went to the Queen's Museum recently and I was like, I had no idea the U.S. Open was so near the climax of Men in Black. Welcome to You're Wrong About. I'm Sarah Marshall, and today we're talking about Renee Richards with our pal, Julie Kleekman. This is You're Wrong About's first tennis episode. This is an episode about sports and gender and the debate over trans kids and sports, trans people in sports, but of course, especially as always in America, trans youth. We have a little trigger warning for you for suicide and suicidal thoughts, which comes up briefly in conversation. It's not something that happens in this story, but it is a topic of thought. Speaking of Pride Month, we have a special Pride episode bonus offering for you with our friend Chelsea Weber-Smith in whose closet I am recording this right now. (laughs) Carolyn informs me that it's funny that I guess came out of the closet and yet here I am trapped in the closet. But Kelsey Weber-Smith is the only closet I would ever want to be in. We did a great episode together where they told me all about the gay agenda. I really love doing it with Kelsey. I love Kelsey's work. Please go listen to American Hysteria. If you haven't yet, you're in for a treat. Buckle up, cowboys. Here we go. We're headed for the U.S. Open. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where very occasionally we talk about sports. And here we go again with Julie Kleekman. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I am so happy you wanted to come and talk to us because I do feel like this show secretly is like a little bit of a sports show, just very occasionally. A little bit. And I think one of the things I love about talking about sports is that whether we know it or not, I think we're always talking about gender which is part of today's show. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd say that's exactly right. And that is already a a more perceptive understanding of sports than like 90% of people interested in sports have. So (laughs) nicely done. I try. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't understand most of them, but I think they're all neat. (laughs) And I would love to start off with who are you and who are we talking about today? Because this is my favorite kind of an episode. This is somebody's life. Sure. So I am Julie Kliegman. Uh, I am the copy chief at Sports Illustrated. I have a book coming out next year um, called Mind Game about how elite athletes navigate mental health. So not quite related to gender, but also not not related to gender. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And uh, we're going to talk about Renee Richards today. Do you have any uh, sort of previous knowledge of her or of tennis in the 1970s? In terms of Renee specifically, I have nothing, which is like one reason I was excited to talk about her with you is that you reached out. You said you wanted to talk about Renee. And I generally am excited to talk about someone who seems to have been very famous in their moment and then forgotten arguably intentionally by history. Mm-hmm. And in terms of tennis in the 70s, my friend Patrick will be slightly sad that I don't know anything because I'm sure there's cool stuff to know. But I know, I know that people were really cool outfits. And uh, Chris Everett was around and had her picture taken by Andy Warhol. That's it. 
there you go. That's that's a great jumping off point. Um, yeah. So Renee Richards is a trans tennis player. She would uh, use trans as short for transsexual, mm-hmm. whereas most of us know it today as transgender. But her preferred term, just so you know, is transsexual. Mm-hmm. By the same notion, instead of saying she like transition genders, uh, she says she had like a sex change operation. So that's I'm using her terminology, but in general, we'll still use transgender and all all that good stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Renee Richards, she was the first, uh, if not the first, openly transgender professional athlete. Certainly the first one of note that we commonly remember. I mean, there Mm -hmm. were instances of transgender athletes in the Olympics who kind of went unnoticed because it wasn't really an issue. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I'm not trying to say trans people were invented in the 1970s in sports, Mm -hmm. but she's kind of like the first well-known professionally out athlete. Yeah. So that's, that comes with a lot of a lot of meaning attached to it. As you said, she was very famous in her moment. A lot of people who were alive then, which does not include me, at least uh, know her name. Yeah, I'll send you a picture of her playing tennis if you would like it. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Tennis is also a funny sport in my life because unlike most sports normal people play, I have played it and kind of know how it works. So that's very exciting. Oh, yeah. Do you know do you know the scoring? I know that you go in intervals of 15 and I know that you. Oh, my God. She looks amazing. Sorry. Right. (laughs) (laughs) She does, though, right? She looks like she's like this is an episode of Charlie's Angels where it's like, all right, angels, (laughs) you're infiltrating the U.S. Open. Have fun. I mean, she looks very powerful, very strong Mm -hmm. to me. Um Well, and just like it is, I don't know, it is such a cool shot because like, I guess she's like preparing a backhand, maybe her eyes are on the prize. It's like such an intense sports moment. And it's just like, I think we watch sports partly because we got the sort of vicarious thrill off of watching somebody pursue something so intently. But yeah, where where do you want to start us off? So... Last year, I was asked to write an article for Book Forum, RIP. They did a sports issue. And, you know, I very much like you, I didn't know a ton about her. Um, and I found writing about her and researching her to be very interesting and very thorny. Mm-hmm. And so what we're going to go over is that she was, as I've said, a transsexual female tennis player. And she notably sued for her right to play in the U.S. Open in 1977. Mm. Yeah. So I think her story is about who gets to be a woman in women's sports. And are we any closer to consensus there than we were in 1977? And you could definitely make the case that we're further away. Yeah. And then the other thing about this story is it's about who's allowed to enjoy recreation and in general live an enjoyable life. Is liberation just about sustenance or is it about the freedom to be yourself and show up in leisure, too? Yeah, I I hadn't really seriously looked into her until I was doing research for that article. And I had come out as non-binary about a year before. I also identify as transgender. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting for me to do this research because I think when you're like new to an identity or new to like a label, uh, 
you're kind of used to either finding people like, oh my God, I totally identify this with this person or like, oh my God, who the hell is this? Why do we share a label? Like, what, what is that? <laughs> like, everything becomes so like black and white when you're still new to things and like learning about them in relation to yourself. Mm-hmm. She was maybe one of the first people I found that like occupied this really interesting middle ground for me where like, I appreciate her place in history and I also don't appreciate a lot of things she said. And I think talking about her and her complexity is just really important. Mm. The kind of girl bossification of women in history and, you know, and so many other things of that nature with different categories of identity. But in this case where we want everyone to be kind of someone to look up to. And it's like, what if someone is deserving of our, our study study being a form of care for like not necessarily being somebody we want to even emulate because because they lived a life and it's important to us. Right. And Renee herself very much rejects this idea of being a role model, of being a pioneer. I mean, I think she was a pioneer ultimately. I think that's kind of indisputable, but she doesn't want the worship that comes along with that. She's like Moses. She's like, no, I just want to relax. Don't make me do it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's a classic Moses quote. I'm busy (laughs) chilling. Yeah. (laughs) NMJC dash Moses. (laughs) All right. So I'll kind of take you into her early years here. Uh, Yeah, I would love that. She was born in 1934 and was raised in Sunnyside, Queens. And then her family moved to Forest Hills, which is famously the site of the U.S. Open. Oh, my God. Wow. That's right. Because I I went to the Queens Museum recently and I was like, I had no idea the U.S. Open was so near the climax of Men in Black. (laughs) The two most important events in history. That's so true. (laughs) So, yeah, her father was an orthopedic surgeon and her mother was a psychiatrist. So you have this very serious, very Mm. medically, scientifically oriented family. She started playing tennis seriously at age 10. She had always loved shagging balls for her dad when he played. Mm -hmm. But and then, you know, she's kind of started competing around 10 and she obviously had a knack for it or, you know, we wouldn't be here talking about her. Now, during this time, from a very early age, she started experiencing what we would call today as gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to go into quite all of the cliches and stereotypes about like a trans girl growing up and trying on clothes and Mm -hmm. looking in her mirror and, and all that silly stuff. But Renee presented as a boy for her entire childhood, except for in some private moments and moments where she would kind of sneak off from her family and friends. Mm. You know, she chronicles like pretty thoroughly the mindset of she had in her teenage years. Um, She described herself as walking a tightrope between genders. And over the years, that would cause her a great deal of depression. She would have suicidal thoughts, though she's also noted that she never seriously considered suicide. Mm -hmm. Around that time in her teenage years, she found a book of her mother's that described transsexualism as a disorder. Mm. So she says that event marked the beginning of a full-scale effort to do away with Renee. Mm. The specter of lunacy turned the struggle into a real war. 
And then she describes herself as spending her next 15 years mostly as trying to kill off Renee and, you know, present as a, a boy and then a man. I don't know. It, it That is so sad to hear, you know, not because it's surprising, I guess, but because it feels like, I don't know, that like maybe the language we use publicly about trans youth like doesn't emphasize the emotional violence of for, trying to force yourself to be something you're not. I think that's exactly right. And then you run across books like this that like, I mean, call you a lunatic. And it's like, what do you how are you supposed to feel? How are you supposed mm-hmm. to get through that? I think even today, like we definitely don't talk enough about like the mental health effects of simply existing as a trans person. And then you have all these laws like the trans sports laws mm-hmm. that kind of come down on top of that. And Trevor Project research has shown that you know, that really does have an effect on kids' mental health. Which shouldn't be news, but of course it does need to be news. We do need to corroborate with studies the fact that, like, if you're constantly receiving messages challenging your right to exist, it can be bad for you. It's like, gee. Yeah, who would have thought? (laughs) This sounds like an awful, you know, an awful way to grow up at any time, but also, like, this is the 1940s, which also mm-hmm. famously a time so repressive that we like conspired to leave no trace of sex in our movies, lest the aliens someday learn that we had it, I guess. Because <laughs> <laughs> the aliens totally aren't having sex themselves. No, they would they would never. No, they just anally probe people in remote corners of the galaxy. That's their thing. It's It's fine. <laughs> So she goes to high school at the prestigious Horace Mann School, where Mm. she played football. She played baseball. And she says she once had scouting interest from the New York Yankees in baseball. Wow. Yeah. And of course, she played tennis as well. She went to Yale for college, where she was the captain of the men's tennis team. She went to the University of Rochester for med school. Mm -hmm. She graduated in 1959. In college is when she started seeing a psychologist about her transsexualism. Mm -hmm. And she would go on to see the same psychologist for years and years. But yeah, like she eventually goes into the Navy to continue training as like an ophthalmologist Hmm. um, following in that, you know, kind of scientific background that her family has. I have no idea if her memoir covers this, but like how early did she want to do that? Was she like a little... Was as a child, was she like, I want to be an eye doctor? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe she was, but that's not really the impression I got from the book. The Mm. impression I got from the book is like, I love playing sports and I'm expected to go into this like serious, like stand up field. Right. Which is like, I feel like such a a feature of growing up with that kind of family and expectations where you're like, what's what's something impressive I can do that isn't like heart surgery? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, she does grow to love the profession, though. So that's that's nice. I mean, not everyone can say that of their careers. Yeah. So so she does really well in the Navy playing tennis there. She won si- singles and doubles in the all Navy championship. At one point, she was ranked as high as fourth in her region. I had no idea there was Navy tennis. This is like a whole world opening up. <laughs> yeah, military sports. They're they're a thing. I feel like there should be more Polly Shore movies about this. (laughs) (laughs) So she is done with the Navy. She becomes a world-renowned ophthalmologist. She specializes in eye muscle surgery, in correcting double vision, 
by all accounts, she really does seem to like this career quite a bit. She seems like it gives her a lot of self-esteem, a lot of confidence, a lot of sense of purpose, I guess. Mm. Per an affidavit uh, made later, she would say that she made $100,000 a year as an ophthalmologist, which obviously even today is a significant amount of money. And back then certainly was a very significant amount of money. Yeah, this is like when people are going around buying a house for $50,000 and maybe it has a pool. (laughs) What is her relationship to tennis in this period, I wonder? Because it's like, I mean, I guess this is also a question about how professional tennis works, because I kind of assume, I guess, based on other sports that like, if you're really good at something, you probably won't make that much money at it unless you're like one of the best in the world. So you have to like also be an ophthalmologist or something like Is this something that she wants to pursue full time? And ophthalmology is like, does that feel like a concession to practicality or is I don't know what's that all like? It does feel like a bit of a concession to practicality. The mm. eye, eye surgeon career. It it does feel like a bit of a case of like tennis isn't serious, mm. but she loves it and she keeps coming back to it at every stage of her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she played against men in the U.S. Open five times between 1953 and 1960. Wow. And a lot of the argument that people make about trans athletes is like, oh, they were a nobody as a man and then they became a woman and they're destroying the competition. But the reality is she was a good tennis player when she was presenting as male. It's yeah. And it's also, I don't know. It's like that argument is so clearly based like so many of the other ones are on like the idea of (laughs) transitioning. So as to like achieve some kind of ulterior motive aside from just being able to live your life as the person you are. It's like, no, it's all about, tennis (laughs) right and she she kind of makes this point too and others will in defense of her and it's like what what are you what are you thinking you think there's gonna be like a parade of men dressing as women just so they can like beat the shit out of a tennis ball like i don't think that's how it works i mean that could be a fun party but it's more of a limited event kind of a thing it's it's a that's uh, right that that's the drag invitational yeah (laughs) i feel like this is something that we're inside of right now this idea that like someone's gender is about you like that someone's gender is about the feelings of like me the senator from iowa or whatever. Yeah, this idea that like you are personally offending me by doing something to your body. Yeah. Like we don't act like that when people get tattoos. My mom does, but not to nearly that extent. <laughs> <laughs> we did a bonus episode this month with Chelsea Weber Smith on the gay agenda and the like spoiler slash teaser I'll give you for it is that there's only a straight agenda. That's the only agenda because straightness is the only thing that people have to be forced into. The only thing that has to be rigidly taught and you know that you have to punish people for not doing and that you have to groom people into is heteronormativity. And it feels like there's a lot of projection about people secretly understanding that that's what they're doing. And then that's why they have to accuse everyone else of it, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of putting it. Much like with her childhood, I'm not going to talk too much about the uh, X's and O's, I guess, of her transition, because it's not really... Not her business, yeah. 
Yes, correct. And that was, you know, in 1975. And like I said, her book does go into a lot of detail about that whole process, both physically and emotionally. And she's very adamant throughout both of her autobiographies. The second one is called No Way, Renee. Does she have a book called Walk Away, Renee? Or is she saving that? <laughs> I was really hoping so. But yeah, maybe maybe that's the next book. Yeah, She's also like on and off hormones a little bit over the years, as I think is pretty normal. She talks about the muscle definition disappearing in her arms, which I think is notable for a tennis player. Mm-hmm. At the same time, her muscle was disappearing. She's also like, hey, I get to wear sleeveless dresses without feeling embarrassed of my arms. Like, that's pretty awesome. So it's like a pro anacon for her as, an, as a female athlete, I think. Yeah. God, that is emotional. At first, she tries to leave tennis behind entirely. She moves from New York to California. She, of course, naturally, she just happens to live across the street from a tennis club. (laughs) (laughs) And she really just can't fucking resist tennis, which is, you know, that's been a constant in a very tumultuous life. So it makes a lot of sense to me. She describes herself as being Eve in the in the Garden of Eden, except (laughs) instead of an apple. Instead of an apple, she says she has a tennis ball. What's even in the middle of tennis balls? I bet it gets really gross in there. Or no, it's golf balls that are like really gross inside. Are tennis balls hollow? They do seem hollow, right? Like just the sound they make. They got to be hollow. Listeners, write in. Tell us what's inside a tennis ball. Go cut one open right now. (laughs) I'm wondering if there's stuff in her book about how she decided to transition finally, because it is, I don't know, especially in this time... And like, what options did she have? And probably the, uh, again, corollary of was it easier in 1975 than it is now? It was definitely a little bit harder in 1975. Not that it's by any means easy now, Mm -hmm. but she had a lot of trouble finding a surgeon who would sign off on this and do the operation. It was, she ultimately decided to go to Morocco and do the surgery but then she kind of got cold feet and Mm. backed out and ended up getting the surgery done in new york finally but you know there were years it was a battle for her to get this operation done it was a battle for her to get hormones Mm -hmm. you know her she had her psychologist this whole time you know telling her that she was a man she had exactly one conversation about her transition with her mother and and she was like, but you were such a normal child. <laughs> and A, I don't think that's really true from any from mm-hmm. anyone's vantage point. And B, like, come on, lady. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and that's the kind of remark that I feel like so much of the time means like that the parent ordered a chicken salad sandwich and then you grow up and you realize pretty quickly that you're an endive salad, you know, and then you're like, mm-hmm. I'm an endive salad. And they're like, no, no, you're the thing I ordered. I've looked into it and I really don't want you to be something I didn't order. And you're what I ordered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think every parent, uh, my understanding, feels that to some degree. But yeah, it's all to say she had this pressure on her from her psychologist, from her mother, from medical institutions. And she yeah. was a part of these medical institutions, too. So I can't imagine how that must have felt for her, like being a well-respected ophthalmologist, a world-renowned ophthalmologist, and at the same time being told, like, no, you don't know what's best for your body. Right. Well, and it, <laughs> which ironically is like the fastest way to like 
get the medical establishment to treat you like a woman is to ask <laughs> to be able to present as one finally because it's uh, you, it's like the beginning of your life as a woman is being de- denied your first ever medical procedure as one. That is very fitting. I feel like we look at history and sometimes we expect people to be able to be like, well, this entire infrastructure that I was raised in that my, you know, I grew up knowing about having my world shaped by was schooled in, came of age in, is telling me that I have to keep living a lie in order to be considered sane. And I have to all by myself somehow find a way to believe that I like I think for so many people, it can't even be a conscious decision to decide to try and step out of that and trust your own understanding of who you are, because that, you know, we're raised to believe in institutions. And that's so hard to walk out of. Reading the book is fascinating, because it's like, you really do see these like moments of self harm and just total uh, lack of clarity and not by her own doing. It's by all the people and institutions surrounding her. Yeah. So, so 1975. So she's 31 at the time. 41. Oh, 41. Wait. Oh, yeah. She was born in 1934. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's 1975 when she transitions. Obviously, at this point, she's well past like the prime of like an average professional athlete mm-hmm. who typically like peak in their late 20s, maybe, maybe very early 30s. She's called her transition in the years since, quote, a very selfish thing. Mm-hmm. I think she's probably being a little bit too hard on herself. I think there's a difference between being selfish and taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Trans people just aren't often afforded the space or the means to take care of themselves. And it probably felt like a luxury at the time to be doing something like that. Yeah. Well, and does she get into why she deems it selfish or is she just like, well, it's obviously selfish. She has a wife and a family mm-hmm. before she fully transitions. I'm, you know, I'm using fully kind of in quotes. Mm-hmm. I think she's using the word selfish in the context of like, how could I like give up my family? Because she does get divorced. I think she has a lot of feelings, especially later in her life, about her relationship to her son. Mm-hmm. The year after she has the sex change operation, you know, she's been told by a gynecologist friend that she shouldn't get back into tennis, that her serve would be recognized anywhere, that <laughs> she's going to get outed by playing tennis. Hmm. But but she really can't resist. Like, she lives near this tennis club and she loves the sport. And she says private play is fun, but it isn't as spicy as a tournament. <laughs> yeah, the spice factor. I mean, who can resist? Yeah, I lo- well, and I love that. And I love that she... I don't know. I don't know if she would describe it as fun because spicy things aren't always fun exactly, but that she like misses it. I'm just going to send you like one line from her book. Mm -hmm. So she wrote, I felt so comfortable as Renee that I thought once again, why shouldn't I have everything I want? Oh, I love it. I mean, it's definitely a stance she backtracks on closer to the present day, Mm -hmm. but I think it's really notable that she felt so bold and so entitled to the things that everyone else has that don't that we don't have to always fight for she finally feels comfortable 
right? That it that when you finally when you have that feeling of like, why shouldn't I have everything I want? It's like it feels like that has something to do with shedding that feeling of like having to stifle yourself, which admits to questioning your own right to exist in any real way. Mm-hmm. And so then it I don't know, it feels very powerful for her to then come back to tennis. She's finally like, maybe doing the thing that has been most consistent in her life as herself truly for the first time. Exactly. It's I think that's ultimately why she couldn't resist. Yeah. Because playing tennis is in some ways the most natural form of who Renee Richards is. And, that, you know, we'll get more into this later, but we're so fixated on the concept of winning in sports that I feel like we have forgotten in some ways about what else they offer to the people who do them and to kids, especially. And one of them just being like, when you find the right thing for you, you can feel like you have to, you don't have to feel weird about your body for at least one hour of the day. And everybody should have access to that. Everybody should. Yeah. And I I think it does get intentionally overlooked by a lot of lawmakers that, Kids are doing this to have fun. They're doing it to make friends. They're they, they're doing it to feel at home in their bodies, ultimately. And, you know, for lawmakers, no, it's all about scholarships. It's all about making cis girls cry. I don't know. What have you? You know who makes cis girls cry? Cis boys. Work on that, government. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> oh, my God. Another interesting thing that I think she says around this time is that she writes, the whole world seemed to be looking for me to be their Joan of Arc. So that's a really fascinating comparison to me. Yeah. Joan of Arc was definitely gender nonconforming, very likely to be trans. Mm -hmm. She was literally burned at the stake for not complying with gender norms. When you put it that way... (laughs) So she starts playing these tournaments because she can't resist. At a tournament in La Jolla in 1976, she is playing really well. Meanwhile, a reporter in the background is doing some digging. She had her name legally changed, but Mm -hmm. he's unearthed her dead name. Mm -hmm. This person, by the way, happens to be Tucker Carlson's father. What? Richard. (laughs) No, no. She is literally outed by Tucker Carlson's father. (laughs) And that was the day Tucker went to bring your demonic little boy to work day. And you can really see the impression (laughs) it made. So he basically outs her, but in his version of things, she's a, like we see today, she is apparently a man masquerading as a woman. Mm. He does not like use the term transsexual or transgender. He just thinks she's trying to like hustle people at tennis, Mm -hmm. basically. She worked so hard on tennis hustling that she just found out she was a woman. (laughs) (laughs) So she holds a news conference at her tennis club. She says about 100 reporters came. So this is like a giant story. This is like people are like, oh, my God. Yes, this is a very big story. God. So she is forthcoming at this news conference, uh, really like owning her identity. I mean, uh, she's not the only tennis star who has come out as queer, not really by their own choosing. I mean, Billie Mm. Jean King, Martina Navratilova, they weren't exactly like jonesing to come out. She then goes to a tournament in South Orange, New Jersey. It's run by a friend of hers. He's like, no, come play, come play. It'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, She had played there before her transition as well. 
So she's now second guessing herself at every possible moment. She's like, can I pat a ball boy on the head? Oops, better not. Like, better <laughs> not make the transes look bad. Better not, you know, be seen as essentially like grooming or being creepy or, you know, doing anything even remotely like out of line that mm-hmm. can be considered like weird or unusual in any form. 25 of the 32 women entered in that tournament ultimately drop out oh my in God. protest of her presence. Yeah. Uh, this continues to be like a big national story at this point. When when Tucker Carlson's dad outed her at this other, this previous tournament she was in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like how sort of high in the rankings of women's tennis is she at this point? She's doing pretty well because she, I believe, wins that tournament. Mm, It's not like she's like a fringe player. Um, She is known to be competitive. She is succeeding. I mean, I don't Mm -hmm. think she's like Chris Everett level, who, again, is like many years her junior. Right. But she's like good enough to make people nervous. Good enough to get the Carlsons concerned. (laughs) Mm-hmm. 1976, that same year, is the first year she tries to compete in the U.S. Open against other women. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, by the way, this is the same summer that Caitlyn Jenner captivates the world and wins the Olympic decathlon. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And the decathlon is like a singularly terrifying Olympic event, too. It's like they just rolled all of the other events into one and we're like, all right, Caitlyn, get out there. Yes. <laughs> And she did. And she was great. And then I think everything in her public image went downhill from there, probably. It was a good moment, though. So as Caitlyn Jenner is doing her thing, we have Renee applying to play in the U.S. Open. And the USTA tells her that she can if she passes the bar body test which hadn't been required before for wow. playing in the U.S. Open. Is that where they see how many bars your body can go to? Oh, my God, I'm sorry. Close. <laughs> no, no, no. So the bar body test is looking at your chromosomal makeup. All right. You know, many women have XX chromosomes. Many men have, like, XY chromosomes. As I remember every time I have to look at bathroom doors that are pulling that shit, and I'm like, I don't fucking remember it's yeah i mean we need to have a whole conversation about like bathroom doors at like cutesy breweries and stuff oh my god (laughs) they're out of control yeah you know she refuses to take this test arguing that correctly in fact that not all men have male chromosomes and vice versa Mm -hmm. she didn't feel like her chromosome makeup that she was born with in 1934 had anything to do with her sexuality in 1976 she writes that in her book Mm -hmm. now i'm going to send you another quote from her book that i think you're going to enjoy that it would be great if you could read yeah okay how hungry for tennis success must you be to have your penis chopped off in pursuit of it how many men would do it for a million dollars If you could find one, would such a neurotic be likely to have the concentration to play top flight tennis, even if he didn't go completely crazy once he realized what he'd done? (laughs) That's so great. Yeah, no, I love it. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is like, of course, these are not men masquerading as women. Like, Renee is just a woman trying to be a woman and trying to play a sport. And those two things are only kind of sort of related. And yeah, so that's kind of like the defense in her book for what she's doing as she faces backlash from people on the tour, from coaches on the tour, 
from the USTA itself. Women's sports like do have a ton of problems, but the problem is that nobody cares about them and there's no money and you can like make minimum wages, you know, someone at in like the top 10 athletes in your sport in your country and you can still not really be able to get by. And uh, that's the problem. Like, I feel like the, the problems in women's sports, like they are being clobbered by men, but like at the institutional level. Yeah. I mean, something we've seen a lot of in the last few years, I'm sure was equally rampant during, you know, Renee's heyday was uh, abusive coaches. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, you know, that's one problem. You also have inequity in facilities. We love to hide the dangerous elements of sports by talking about how important it is for like community and leadership and like being part of something. And it feels like one of the unacknowledged fears is like, what then if you were on a team with, if you're a cis girl and you're on a team with, and you love a trans girl on a team with you, or if you, you know, you're in a relationship with all of your teammates and you're doing something together and then you are whoops building community with trans people and then you can't be pushed around as easily by your parents Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah like what if the cis kids find out that trans people are people like (laughs) now that's the tennis ball that god told you not to take a bite of (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking about it, like all the fuzz like that's just it sounds like it would really like uh, the texture is not ideal. Yeah, like the sensory idea of it is like truly squirm inducing. <laughs> and that's why I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so Renee is not allowed to play in the 1976 Open because she does not take the bar body test. Wow. But she keeps playing tennis, even though it kind of like jeopardizes her credibility. It jeopardizes the credibility of people she's playing for uh, who are hosting tournaments. She plays when she can. Mm -hmm. And in 1977, she once played uh, women's doubles with Billie Jean King Mm -hmm. at Billie Jean King's invitation. So that's pretty cool. Billie Jean King is not out at this point um, Mm -hmm. as lesbian, by the way. It's also crazy that like, Billie Jean King is, from what I remember from that American Masters, like one of the people who made Title IX possible, but we remember her mostly for that time she beat that old gross sexist. (laughs) You know who else beat the old gross sexist? Renee Renee. Richards. (laughs) (laughs) This guy was just out here like challenging anyone with like a pulse to like play him in tennis. And I was like, bro, just... No. (laughs) And it worked because they made a Holly Hunter movie about it. (laughs) (laughs) She does decide to take the bar body test in 1977 at some point. And the results are apparently ambiguous. Hmm. She says she passed. I don't think that's the common consensus. She says she wouldn't take the test a second time under USTA's conditions. At this point, they're kind of at an impasse. And Renee... uh, sues for the right to play in the u.s open Mm. so talking about how like every character in the story is like you know kind of like their own main character in a different story (laughs) the person who agrees to take on her case is roy Cohn. (gasps) oh my god yeah that's like a name that jump scares you oh yeah absolutely it's just to be totally clear it's like that roy cone the roy cone you're thinking of and for people who, um, who aren't thinking of a roy cone 
Please tell us who is Roy Cohn. There are so many ways to know him. I know him as the guy who wrote Donald Trump's prenup when he married Ivana, which is surely a good sign. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that was one of the first places I was going to go was his support of Donald Trump. The other obvious association is uh, McCarthyism. Uh, he was <laughs> that guy involved with the Rosenbergs and, and all that. Truly the long 20th century. And died of AIDS while being a virulent homophobe. And yeah, just apparently had his fingers in every legal pie in the 20th century. It's, and I don't, I also know him first as a character in Angels in America, which is mm. kind of a strange way to meet someone because that's, that's a redemption arc for him because it's him dying and entertaining the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg. But that's a whole other episode. Renee was told by a friend that he was controversial, but the best there was. <laughs> and I'm like, this is like the biggest understatement I've ever heard in my life. He's he was controversial. controversial. <laughs> Renee is all nervous and she goes to his apartment. He greets her at the door in a bathrobe because, of course, he does. Mm. He immediately takes the case. He ends up handing it to his partner, Mike Rosen, but the association with the case is very much with him. Like, you know, it's Roy Cohn's partner. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a whole thing. Interestingly, though, Renee barely spends any time on this in the book. You know, I've, I've never been part of a lawsuit, but it does seem like, you know, even in the best of circumstances, it takes over your life in such a profound way that by the time it's over, it feels like it would make a lot of sense to just not want to talk about it anymore right and this book came out in 1983 so she's like not all that far removed from it the case was heard in the new york supreme court in august of 1977 wow. the u.s open typically starts after you know around labor day so like oh beginning of september so this we're like down to the wire here renee had doctors testify her for her that she was indeed a woman this is of course not based on like social norms or like respect for people it's based purely on the fact that she had this one surgery right mm -hmm. but nevertheless the doctors testify for her billy jean king files a, an affidavit supporting her the usta's argument on the contrary was the bar body test was needed to keep male imposters from entering the woman's horror so it's it goes back to this idea about protecting women in sports like protecting in heavy air quotes and again it's like why would you want to be in women's sports if you identify as a man and you could be in men's sports where you get paid more money and people notice what you're doing. Right. People watch you on TV. You have TV broadcasts. Like The song remains the same and the song is stupid. Yes. The judge also thinks the song is stupid, I guess, because <laughs> he rules in favor of Renee. He misgenders her in the ruling, but nevertheless, he rules in favor of her. Yeah, I mean, he does have some concern for Renee's sanity here, which I think there are a lot of people in this country who would rather see trans people dead than living as their true selves. Right. So at least he's acknowledging that, you know, she needed to do this for her, for her livelihood. Yeah, right. And that this was fundamentally necessary. And then to believe that you're kind of you're allowing maybe someone else to sort of take the ingredients they find in what you say and construct the understanding that if this was essential to somebody's well-being, then they were always a woman. So the good news is Renee can play. Um, mm -hmm. She can play anywhere in the U.S. or South America. 
she would have had to undertake a second lawsuit to be able to play in Europe. So she does not do that, but she can play. And after all the hype uh, about being able to like supposedly beat Chris Everett, she loses in the first round of singles to Virginia Wade, who is a British player who had won Wimbledon just that year. She does come pretty close to winning in doubles, though. She's playing with Betty Ann Stewart. They lose to Martina Navratilova and her partner. This is interesting for several reasons. The most immediate reason is that Renee would go on to coach Martina for a couple of years. Huh. So Renee plays in several more U.S. Opens. She plays professional tennis for four more years. She's coaching Martina. Then she returns to being an eye doctor in 1981, which is the same year that King and Navratilova both come out. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of her tennis career. Like, she never wins the U.S. Open. A lot of them are happy to play with her. Some of them are not. They'll make snide comments about being in the locker room with her. They'll complain about her being it for the money stuff, which I think is kind of funny, but she does have a lot of supporters. So it's, it's just kind of a mixed bag. And then she kind of like, it's like, okay, maybe I'm finally actually too old for this. Let me go back to my other love eye surgery. I love that she has ophthalmology as a fallback. It's just like very L woods. So, okay. So she's back to, to the ophthalmologist life. She is a practicing ophthalmologist for several more decades, I believe. And uh, she's 88 today. Mm. So she is still among us. She has given a handful of interviews to major publications over the years. As I was alluding to before, they all misgender her and dead name her. And yeah, so there's an ESPN documentary made about her in 2011. It's kind of weirdly obsessed with her relationship with her son, which mm. is fractured. Mm. It's like very interested in this question of can trans people parent kids? <laughs> Focusing on that aspect is maybe missing the story, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how she was as a parent to her son, but probably it's not all wrapped up in her being trans. Right. And like you were saying before, it's like you can't in a postmortem very easily or at all pick apart the effects of transitioning when you have a child and then like the social stigma and the beliefs of people around you and the the effect that has on everybody and you're in your child's life. Mm-hmm. We did an episode last fall about people's abortion stories and we had people, you know, send in their stories of experiences with abortion and there were like several themes that were very prominent and one of them that showed up over and over and over and over again was that my abortion wasn't bad but the stigma around it was or the experience around it was or the mm-hmm. pursuit of it was. But the abortion itself didn't feel bad or wrong, but everything around it made it harder. Right. And this feels like that kind of thing too, where we have something that we stigmatize socially and then people have to deal with the fallout of the way people treat them and the way people react to something that maybe was painful because it was a medical procedure or a surgery, but that was very clearly to them the thing that they needed and allowed them to be happier to even survive. But then if we're against that, then we get to cook up these bad faith arguments about how abortion or transitioning or whatever else is must be harmful because look at the effects of the way our culture treats you when you've done that. Right. You can't win. Yeah. It's really interesting just to compare 
the reaction that trans athletes get today to the reaction she got then. Um, so I just want to go into a little bit about mm-hmm. the reaction then. There were some interesting letters to the editor from the New York Times from around the time of the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And there are there's some garden variety transphobia in the letters to the editor. But for the most part, the letters are really supportive of mm-hmm. Renee. Mm-hmm. Kelsey from Greenwich, Connecticut she's like, you know, this sounds an awful lot like how white people would suffer from like losing to black people in sports, (laughs) not to mention like the damage that was inflicted on little league boys when girls signed on to play. So, I mean, these are imperfect comparisons, but I think they're also astute, at least for the time. She says, as a lifelong woman, I would like to welcome Dr. Richards to our ranks and assure her that most of us, excluding our dollar happy sisters on the court, Feel no fear and hold no prejudice as far as she is concerned. Yeah. And I feel like that's the kind of viewpoint that doesn't get represented by the historical record. If we kind of zoom out too far, then that misses the people who were always there kind of in a more quiet way being like, well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Renee seems great. I'm going to not shout because I'm not violently opposed to her, but we'll say at a normal volume that this all seems great for her and good for Renee. And then people who spoke a little bit more quietly don't get remembered. It's my kiss people who shouted. It's a little bit like how you only leave like a Yelp review if there was like a bug in your food or something. (laughs) (laughs) It is like that. It's like history. History is like composed of Yelp reviews. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think we can go into a little bit of her kind of present day views, which we've talked a little bit about already with the documentary and Mm -hmm. everything like that. So she does not like the word transgender, as I mentioned at the top of the show. She calls it inclusive as a word, and that's what she doesn't like about it. Mm. So she's like, I changed from man to woman, not something in between. Uh, She correctly points out that transgender suggests and in many instances refers to an in-between, partway from one sex to the other. And she says the idea of androgyny is not appealing to her. I like the binary system that God designed for us. Two Mm. sexes, two genders, male and female. It's what makes the world go round and is the spice of life. (laughs) I love that she loves the word spice. Um, I feel like this this is obviously a much bigger conversation of kind of you know now in a great way I think there are trans elders old enough and talkative enough to say things that the trans community today is like absolutely not Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that yeah I mean I guess it didn't totally surprise me that someone her age and who came up in that time facing that pressure and those stigmas would have those views It's obviously a little disappointing, especially knowing her story. It's not like she instantly went from being a man to a woman, though maybe that's how she sees it based on her writing. But Mm -hmm. she did have this whole like tweener phase kind of thing, like is normal, where she's taking hormones, she stops taking hormones, she kind of feels like her chest changing. Um, She has surgery on her Adam's apple at one point. And so I think it's maybe like not the most introspective thing she's ever said, but <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah. I, what 
what I'm going to say next even disappoints me a little more because mm-hmm. now she's talking specifically about tennis and mm-hmm. whether trans people should compete in sports. She's basically saying, like, if I had played women's tennis in my 20s, I would have won Wimbledon, she says. Mm-hmm. But at 40, she knew she wasn't going to be the best. She thinks for scientific reasons, trans women shouldn't compete against cis women. And I'll be very clear here, like, the science on this is not settled. Mm-hmm. There's very little of it. And when there's very little science on something, it's an active choice to err on the side of exclusion rather than inclusion. Hmm. Mm-hmm. These studies on transgender athletes right now just frankly don't exist. There's some studies on transgender bodies as they compare to cis bodies and physical activity, but that's obviously not the same when you're dealing with like elite level athletes. There are researchers working on like longitudinal studies about athletic advantage or lack thereof. But for now, we're kind of in this moment where you can kind of like read the tea leaves however you want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really dangerous. But yeah, Renee chooses to read them as like, no, the science on this is settled. Mm-hmm. Trans women have way more testosterone than cis women, which on average isn't wrong. It just doesn't necessarily have to be scary. Right. I don't know. And then I feel like another approach to this topic is just like, why are we dividing sports up by gender at all? My editor's going to think I paid you to say that. Um <laughs> But that really is the ultimate question, right? And I think, you know, obviously a lot of this and a lot of the pearl clutching around this stems back to Title IX. It was passed in 1973 Mm. and it made opportunities for women by making sure there were women's athletic programs at colleges. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, it slowly created professional opportunities for them as well in sports. Even though it's scholastic in nature, it really affects women's sports at all levels. And so you have women clinging tight to these spots that they think they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. And they're probably right about that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what would the world end if we organized basketball by height or other sports by weight class? Like, probably not. Yeah. Or figure skating by musical genre. Yes. (laughs) I just want all gender, (laughs) all sexuality, skating organized however we want to but you could have for example like a night of bond themes (laughs) i think we would all be happy with that (laughs) i think we would be too people care a lot about sports uh whether they are you know fans of sports whether they have kids who play sports whether they played sports growing up uh whether they're singularly obsessed with tanya harding (laughs) like everyone has some connection right yeah (laughs) So I, I don't know. This is all to say that like sports mean different things to different people and everyone takes them really personally in certain ways. And I think it's hard then when you see like people like Renee saying like, oh, there's no room for in between or maybe trans people can have everything except for sports. Mm-hmm. So we have had like prominent trans athletes since Renee, but maybe no one who is like so singularly captivated the public in the same way she has. Mm -hmm. I think you have to look at what's going on now and think about what are we doing? As recently as a few weeks ago, Nikki Haley, who's running for president as a Republican. Wow. Yeah. Was asked on a town hall what one of the biggest issues facing the country was. And she said trans people in women's locker rooms. Honest to God, that's what she said. Oh, my God. 
I mean, she didn't say the word cisgender, but implying cisgender, she said teen girls are killing themselves because of it. Oh, are they? Apparently. God. Uh. Yeah. And we're at a time in which 22 states, that's nearly half of all states, ban transgender athletes from sports at the high school or college levels. That's only been since 2020 that this has been true. It started with Idaho. Uh, some states ban only trans girls and women. Some also ban trans boys and men. Mm -hmm. Some states have injunctions in place preventing enforcement for now as the cases kind of like wind their way through the legal system. If you're non-binary, like, well, good luck. Like, I don't know what to tell you, but you probably can't play somewhere. <laughs> if you're non-binary, you get nothing. You're welcome. One of the people kind of leading this charge against transgender athletes mm. is Martina Navratilova. Twist. God, I didn't know that knife in the heart i know i know so she co-runs this group called the women's sports policy working group it's a really prominent organization that purports to advocate for like a middle ground solution in women's sports it's a terrible acronym there is not a single vowel in that acronym do better i know i know it's a little unclear i'm constantly <laughs> like looking up the name to remember it <laughs> But yeah, so it purports to advocate for this middle ground. But in reality, it's pretty clear when you dig into the rhetoric that this group is opposed to trans competitors altogether. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like Martina, who obviously herself is gay, can point toward her relationship with Renee to sort of vouch for her track record on queer inclusion in sports. But at the same time, it's like, well, what do you want her to do? Because Renee has stuck by her friend as well and said, like, yeah, I mean, she's right about biology. Yeah, well, and and just and to get back to this idea of like the girl bossification of history, it's like, yeah, sometimes you go through the machine and you are very grateful for all the joy you were allowed to have. And you respond to that by trying to rigidly police everyone following behind you. And it sucks and it hurts. We do not respond to being told we're less than human by rising above it. Typically, we respond by being wounded. I know it's so shitty and so hard to process. And yeah, Renee herself has said she got into tennis because she wanted individual glory. She wanted to stand out at first in her family, but then presumably you're meant to understand later on is like she just wanted to stand out in general. And like, I would posit basically, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with wanting that for yourself? And she now feels, okay, I was allowed to do it. Yes, but I was old. Now other people cannot want this for themselves. Mm -hmm. Which like implies, I don't know, the guilt underneath everything still of just like, well, I could do this, but it wasn't, it wasn't great that I did it. And we can't have too many people doing it. Right. Trans kids in sports, it, it it really is kind of gives me whiplash to realize that like this wasn't even a conversation a few years ago, you know, like this mm -hmm. proves that this is a manufactured controversy that like people did not know to even think about before they started being told to do so. Right. And I do think luckily that mo for most people who aren't in Congress um, or aspiring to be, they're, they're still really not thinking about it. Or if they are, they're not necessarily like thinking about it in the way that conservatives want them to be. Yeah. All of these laws that are about, you know, harming and destroying the right of 
of any marginalized group to continue to exist are like done in the name of of white cis women and how it's it's never about them because the law doesn't really like them either but it's just a you know it's classic you know it's worth mentioning that renee does have this privilege in the sense that she's white like i can't Mm -hmm. imagine Mm -hmm. what it would have been like for a black trans woman on the tour or, you know, you see the way that black trans girls are treated in sports and also in life. Compounding that stress and that stigma onto somebody is like, it's rough. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm happy that I know about her. I feel like this is a story that like the ending is uncomfortable and the ending should be uncomfortable, I think, because you this is not a time to sit back and be like, and then Renee won her battle and everything was great. It's like, no, it was not great. I hope people feel a little bit more insight into her story and that that helps them sort of contextualize what's going on today. And I hope someone picks up her books from this because honestly, they're kind of delightful. I certainly will. I don't know. Thank you so much for bringing her story to us. I feel, I mean, in terms of what's happening now, like, I don't know. What do you wish that people were able to see in all this that they maybe haven't yet? That trans people are complex, just like everyone else. We're messy as hell, just like everyone else. People like Renee can be pioneers or trailblazers, but kind of like uncomfortable ones, both, you know, them personally with that status and the rest of us being uncomfortable looking up to them. And I I hope people do realize that as frivolous as sports may sound, they do mean a lot of things to many people. And they do kind of shape the debates around marginalized groups in this country beyond sports in so many ways. There are so many memorable moments, I think, of athletes making an impression on us, not just because of what they do, but because of the way they do it, you know, like Flojo mm-hmm. or or Billie Jean King or today Amber Glenn, the skater, just that you're at the top of your game showing people what you can do physically, but also showing up as physically the person you are and the person you feel like and the gender you feel and the sexuality you feel and how that I get like, I understand why people pushing the straight agenda are are scared by that because that can be very that can be so freeing and that can allow people to feel more strength and conviction in being who they are so yes we're we're a pro sports show twist (laughs) (laughs) glad to be a small part of that thank you for being our sports correspondent anytime where can we experience more of your brain You can experience my brain, uh, Sports Illustrated, and uh, on social media, at JM Kliegman. Amazing. Julie, thank you for everything. Thank you so much for illustrating all of those sports. It would be really hard to tell what was going on otherwise. And that is our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being queer. Thank you so much to Julie Kliegman, our wonderful guest, for all of their research and storytelling and everything, Julie, that you do. And Carolyn Kendrick, thank you for editing and producing. And 
for everything that you do. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.